Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Jason Gaddis. And to put it simply, Jason is a relationship teacher. He's even founded a podcast called The Smart Couple Podcast, and his latest book out is called Getting to Zero. Here you have somebody who cares immensely about working it out. You get the impression from Jason that he's shy and he doesn't come across like he's got it all figured out. It just feels like it's important. And I think for all of us, you know, it's like the one class that none of us learned in school, how to be in a relationship. And I think there's a million right ways to do it. And I think it's an incredibly personal quest. However, it is wonderful to get input and inspiration and real tools to take away on on how to do it better. Maybe avoid conflict or pain or inflicting pain on your partner and just, you know, opportunities to make it easier any chance you get. So I hope you enjoy. You talk about getting into your first kind of fight in sixth grade and because everybody sort of, I think, has a trauma or perceived trauma. Tell me what you think, you know, got you to the place where you wanted to have these bigger conversations. I was this very sensitive, emotional kid, like a lot of boys. It felt like I was conditioned sort of to be tough and hide all that stuff. As I sort of locked my emotions and my sensitivity behind this big wall, intimate relationships with women, and I became a very guarded, emotionally unavailable guy that would kind of keep you or whoever I was dating at an arm's length. And I did that almost for a decade, that kind of pattern, very short-term relationships. And I was suffering at the end of that. I was not happy. I was very depressed and uh, drinking and using a lot of drugs. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, I realized breaking up with another good woman that I was the problem. Like uh, The one common denominator here is me and I want to fix this problem. And so I went to graduate school and moved from Utah to Colorado and started attacking all of my issues like a beast and learned everything I could about love and intimacy and connection and psychology and you know met my wife and eventually became like a teacher of the thing that was most painful for me, right? Well, it's interesting. I think especially for men, what's hard is like if you are sensitive and I find that some of the most masculine men I know have this side of real sensitivity is or shyness, right? If we talk to young men and boys about, hey, it's okay to be scared or it's okay to feel shy or these to things. To feel insecure sometimes, to feel nervous. Like, absolutely. Because we're, we're sort of taught to posture over all that stuff. In a way, there is more permission out there, you could say, for any young person person to be themselves, a lot of self-expression going on, which is cool. And I still feel like there's this deep boy code gender conditioning thing that's still pretty pervasive, especially in like young boy sports culture. Your book, Getting to Zero, you talk a lot about teaching people really like in a way how to do conflict. And um, one of the things that you talked about, and maybe you could expand on it, is talking about being a relationship leader. First of all, we got to take the view. I want to take the listeners down this road of the view is not, conflict's not a problem. It's going to go on the rest of your life. It's an opportunity to grow and learn more about yourself and the person you're with. And so it's this amazing place to to just learn, even though it's very uncomfortable for most of us, including me. You find conflict to be uncomfortable. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like when I'm in a fight or a snag with my wife, it doesn't feel good in my body. I don't like how that feels. I want to get to the other side sooner than later. 
I know better and, and all that. So I, I take the view, and this is in the book, if you remember, is these, this view of the scared animal that each of us, because we're social mammals, it's like we have a scared animal living in us that's hypersensitive to tone of voice, facial expression, criticism, you name it, right? And it's like, if you look at me a certain way or your tone goes up or down or you walk away or you don't text me back, my scared animal gets activated. And I call it from a scale from zero to 10, zero being we're good, everything's cool here, we're in a good place. 10 is like, I'm really triggered. And it's our job to like try to get back to a good place so that we can play, have sex, have fun, live our life, meet our other challenges. And conflict, even interpersonal conflict in a marriage of 20 years can activate that scared animal and it feels really uncomfortable. It just feels bad. And a lot of people experience that as different. Some people just experience it as numbness, other people, it's kind of like they get hijacked and they're just like super angry. Other people feel this kind of like weird hormones are kind of ripping through their body and it kind of feels kind of alive and maybe good even to fight with someone. You have to watch out for those people. <laughs> that's right. For, for sure. You know, I'm trying to help people go, okay, that's going on and it's normal. Actually, there's nothing wrong with you no matter how you do it. There's four ways we disconnect. We posture, we collapse, we seek or avoid. And we most of us orient or gravitate towards one of those things under stress with another person. And again, normal. So given that, educate yourself and your partner about that or the person you're with, and then learn how to get back to a good place so you can calm that scared animal down and be like, dude, it's like, it's not life threatening here. It's going to be okay. Or an unresolved issue or even the mildest tension with another person in your life. And, and every hand goes up when I'm at events or I'm speaking, every freaking hand goes up. So this is a human problem, right? Very normal. And if you want that to be different, are you willing to admit that it's an issue. And then secondly, do something about it. And then the third step is like, I always say, what is your part like in the dynamic? And the, the, just finish this sentence. My part is, and that can be hard if we have it, that it's really the other person and I have no part, like an affair or something. It's like, no, I have a part. What's your part? So I really challenge people to own their part. And that usually goes really well in a relationship. It's, it's very non-threatening and it's very relaxing to the other person to hear someone take responsibility. Hey, I was the jerk here. My bad. That's nice to hear, right? In a world where it's very easy to blame someone else. You know, maybe we could, you know, just talk a little bit about the different types of blueprints and, you know. For sure. Yeah. So it's kind of like conflict styles is sort of how I'm relating to it now is, so we have posture, collapse, seek, and avoid. And that's what we do under stress with another person. We do one of those four things. Some, some of us do a couple. We usually don't do all four at the same time. It's too complicated. It's like chaos, but most of us gravitate and orient toward one or the other and seek and avoid is the most common pattern. And it does come from our attachment with our primary caregiver. So in other words, under stress as a little kid, if I got my feelings hurt and mom turned her back on me and went away, that created anxiety in me because I felt scared that I was going to lose my mom, right? I would be more of a seeker. Whereas someone who avoids conflict is like, shit went down in my house. It was pretty bad. No one really dealt with it. Everybody just went to their room. No one repaired it. It just somehow got better if we all went to our room and kind of shut up. And that person lived to just self-regulate or auto-regulate, getting on their TV, studying, going to books, going outside, doing something else, changing the channel. And that person's more of an avoider. So under stress, it's like, look, I'm just going to kind of back away slowly and get out of here. And those are the primary two styles. And those are an attachment style anxious ambivalent and anxious avoidant. And then there's this posture collapse thing, which just stems off of those. So the posture person is more of a porcupine. It's like they get kind of big and blamey and kind of aggressive and kind of intense energy. And that can be very scary for the other person. And then the collapser is, is more like a hermit crab. And it's just like, I'm going to hunker down, shut down, go into my shell and not say a word because if I do, it's going to get worse. 
And also they kind of go offline and they, it's hard for them to think and even talk. So most people identify with one of these styles. And I think that's, again, useful to educate each other so that when you're in conflict, you can be like, oh, right, you going away is just what you do in your nervous system. And actually, you don't want to leave me. You're not going to leave me. This is just, and I could make that up. It's just what you do when you're stressed. Yeah, like when we when we partner with someone, especially in a, if we're talking intimate relationships, it, we look similar. We're so similar. Oh my God, you're so amazing because you're like me. We kind of fall in love with ourselves in a way, right? And then over time, we start to polarize and we realize, holy shit, this person's very different than me and they're very annoying and I don't like them anymore. We polarize and now we're kind of opposites. You seek, I avoid. And that to me is perfect because it's this amazing growth opportunity to not only learn about each other, but heal what hasn't been healed from your past. And relationship becomes this amazing path to transformation, to growth, to healing. As a parent for you personally, how are you making adjustments as you go? Because you have a boy and a girl. I'm sure they're very different. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm going to have to talk about attachment briefly. So this constant dance between are you okay? Are we okay? Kind of thing. And a little baby, there's this amazing experiment that your listeners can Google called the still face experiment with Edtronic. Have you seen it? It's so cool. And, and basically the experiment is the researchers placed this mom and child and they videotaped this and they had the mom kind of go still in her face, like do a flat affect kind of thing. They're in this nice play and the mom goes flat and the baby starts reaching for mom and starts wiggling and getting upset. They have the mom look away, look to the side or whatever, and the baby gets even more upset because the baby's basically saying, where are you? You're not with me. And that's all babies are saying really is, are you with me? Are we okay? When those connections happen a lot, the baby gets the message that I'm okay. It's trustworthy here. And then if mom comes back and then the researchers had mom turn back and actually repair the mismatch or the disconnection and the baby was fine. It snapped out of it. It's upset in like seconds, right? It was okay again. And their connection resumed, their amazing, playful connection. And those mismatches, Edtronic says, who did the still face experiment, said that those happen basically hundreds of times throughout the day, right? Especially as an infant, mom's too busy. She's looking at her phone. Dad's like holding the baby and then gets distracted and kind of like disconnected and doesn't really repair the insult. Raised his voice, baby starts crying. Dad forgets, like it doesn't repair very well. Well, the secure attachment gets built actually through the process of disconnection and reconnection. Disconnection and reconnection. So it's not about being a perfect parent. It's not about getting it right all the time. It's about can the parent come back and you, like you said, attune, tune the dial and tune into the child and what it needs. And now we're okay. Oh, and then five minutes later or five hours later, there's a disconnection. Parent has to come back. And it's really in an apparent child relationship, it's the parent's job to like make sure that everything's okay. And in an adult partnership, it's both people's job to make sure that's okay because it's mutual power dynamics, right? And that process, what's so cool about learning this stuff is that's secure attachment. Secure attachment's not about perfection. It's not about you're always there holding your kid. That's that's like not good. You know, that, that would be actually insecure attachment. That goes on here in Boulder a lot, by the way. I'm talking about like just attunement, disconnection, reconnection. And that's really what I'm trying to say in the book is the repair after the inevitable disconnection is the most important part. That's the part where we have to sink our teeth into and learn what works to get the connection back for both of us. And then over time, enough times, secure attachment. We have a secure, badass, strong partnership. Probably experienced this already as a parent and also as a partner, where when you do keep at it in earnest, not perfection, everyone kind of cuts everybody a little more slack and also makes it easier. Because then they look at you and they're like, oh, there you are showing up, trying, you know, like, and kids really will be pretty gracious to you. Mom can own her stuff. Mom's willing to take responsibility. That's enormous. So I want to just remind parents too, like blowing it and then getting the opportunity to learn because usually something, you know, shit goes down. It's like, then you go, okay, I can get new tools. You also talk about 
if we really avoid these conflicts that do make us uncomfortable for the most part, it's like the price on that side, it's brutal. It's very high. Listener, just reflect on the last kind of bad conflict you had that didn't go well. My guess is you lost sleep, you had trouble eating well, you went to your habits and addictions, you tried to compartmentalize it. It sort of created a little bit of tension and havoc in your life. Had you found a way, been able to find a way back to zero, back to a good place, my guess is you would have felt freer, more alive, and you could have focused your attention and energy on the things that matter most to you. And the price tag on our health and our bodies, it's very high. There's this thing called allostatic load that's essentially like a slow cortisol drip in our body that just ain't good for us long-term. You know, that triangle of like the victim, the villain, and then what is it? Yeah, victim, villain, rescuer. Rescuer. Maybe we could dive into a little bit of that. So you're talking about the triangle. Some people call it the drama triangle. I call it the victim triangle. Look, when we get hurt, okay, in a conflict or some kind of issue with another person, most of us fall right into the victim position. That's just what we do. And that's very normal. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of us stay there for life. And the smart ones of us find a way to not stay stuck in that position anymore. But what we do when we're hurt is we look for someone to blame. That's the villain. And then we look for a rescuer or someone to take our side. And this is really common in family dynamics, right? Family of origin, parents, or with your kids. Yeah. What you get in a fight with this daughter of yours and you go to Laird and vent and you want Laird to take your side, right? If we're normal in, the, in that moment, if we're really hurt. But in our bigger selves, we have this capacity to kind of hold a non-triangulation kind of perspective, which is, hey, Laird, I'm upset about this. And what do you think my part is and how can I repair this with our daughter here? Because I feel pretty bad about it. That's more of a mature non-triangulation stance, right? So we can use the rescue or a therapist, a coach or a partner to help us see what we're not seeing, to help us get out of our victim seat. But a lot of us, if we're really hurt, we want someone to actually take our side and blame the villain now. And this becomes very entrenched, especially in families when when families can't work this out. So I, in the book, I'm trying to say by being a relational leader and taking responsibility, you can turn that triangle upside down. So it's right side up and that turns into an A. So the V triangle is like an upside down triangle for victim. We turn it upside down A for author. And then it's like you're on this mountaintop and you can just see better and you get out of the triangle and you've learned and the, and the villains become challengers and the rescuers become supporters and you need challenge and support in your life in order to grow as a person. Flipping it like you just did and being able to see it that way, just that shift of perspective, like uh, with your kids, they can never really be the villain. They really can't be. You care deeply about them and they can cause you a lot of pain and frustration and worry. There's something weird, even energetically, if we let them become the villain. Totally. I'm so with you. This is a very important point because I think parents who let their kids become the villain and parent feels like the victim, you're stuck in a dynamic where you're asking your kid to sort of be the adult here. You're allowing them to hurt you in such a way that it feels a little lopsided. And I think it's important for parents. We do get hurt probably by our kids, but we have to be the bigger person, right? And work through that and be the adult and navigate it and then go to a therapist, a coach, someone else to work with our hurt if it's there. And so we can keep showing up for our kid in this way that's more neutral and balanced. Otherwise, that kid is going to keep seeing where they can hurt you and they're going to put the knife there every time and turn it a little bit. And um, that's not a fun dynamic. And there's times where like I've even experienced where you think, oh, you know, I'm just I'm cutting my losses like this whole thing. I think sometimes we experience, especially you go in your closet, you take a few deep breaths and you are, you know, a romantic partner 
or our kids yeah. or very close friends. It means so much to us. And so we were sort of there with an open heart. And then, but so it makes us more vulnerable. You talk a lot in the book about being triggered. Yeah. And I just take the view that we're going to get triggered by people, human beings for the rest of our lives. And again, not a problem. Know yourself, know which way you disconnect, posture, collapse, seek, avoid. I find it helpful to put a number on it, zero to 10, as a way to educate myself and my person, that whether it's partner, business partner, whoever. I'm activated. I'm like a five out of 10. This is pretty bad, It's but it's not like an eight. I'm okay. We're going to be okay. There's numbers. Sometimes a scale ranking system can help people understand you and, and themselves better. And being triggered is normal. Another way to say that is just we feel activated and it's essentially our nervous system feeling threatened in some way. That scared animal is feeling threatened. Again, normal. And how do we get that scared animal back to a good place? Do you think there's something to be said for being, I'm in a 12 right now. Like you've honored every ugly part of the whole thing. And then you go, cool, now how am I going to deal with this? Absolutely. Here's the thing. Like a lot of people think they shouldn't react, right? They, they get into conflict and they're like, I shouldn't be so reactive. And it's like, well, that's going to be hard to change, but depending on where you came from, and you can get traction on that, but we're going to react the way we react. And we want to understand how quickly can I come back to like, instead of when we're that reactive, I call it moving from the front seat of our brain to the back seat of our brain. We're kind of incapacitated back there. We're going to say and do stupid shit when we're way in the back seat. And it's your job and you're going to do that. That's the reaction because you're scared and you're feeling very threatened. So you say the mean thing or whatever. Your job is as soon as possible to get back in the front seat. There's a number of ways we can do that. But one of the things we want to definitely understand is the empathy part of what is the impact on the other person given that I did that scary thing or said the mean thing. And when we start to empathize and go, wow, that sucked, honey, that I raised my voice that loud and I scared you that much. I really see that and I feel really sad that you have to feel that way. And I can see right even right now looking at you that you're trembling a bit and you're worried that I'm going to hurt you or something. That goes a long way. I do that with my kids when I've raised my voice at my kids. I'm like, daddy got scary, didn't he? And me owning that is very relieving for their scared animal because I'm, I'm not defending myself. I'm just saying, yep, I did it. It was intense. I see the impact. And then again, there's things we can do to get back in a window of tolerance again where we're online again and we can make sense and take responsibility and you know, work through the conflict. When it first hits me and then I'm like, whoever it is, I'm like, I get very, I lean into stuff, but inside, nothing outside. And that's why I said like, I almost let myself internally go to 12, all the real things that I wish in that impulsive moment. And I allow myself inside, it takes seconds or whatever. And then it goes back to, okay, who am I trying to be? That you don't want to do it to your kids or your anyone. And that takes so much time. I like to be like efficient and I'm like, I don't want to blow stuff up. I want to towards resolution, but I don't want to deny myself the really irrational. The true feelings. Yeah. The true feelings. Yeah. I like that. I, I think that's a, actually a good hack you figured out there too. And uh, I, in my experience, you're never going to not judge people. So you may as well judge and judge silently in your own mind, write down your judgments, like let it rip, right? Kind of like you're saying, totally go to the 12th and just let it rip to yourself. And here's the thing, here's the caveat for me with you and your technique here. If you did that every day, let's say, and you kept hiding that from me, let's just pretend for a minute. That would suck for me because I feel like I wouldn't know you. You know, so there there is a disclosure we can do later when we're calm and let the person know I was kind of off the rails in my head, but I got myself back to a good place. Like I, I wouldn't want you to hide that from me, is what I'm saying. What I learned in my partnership was I learned how to apologize for one, because he taught me how to create a safe space for like, hey, sorry. 
But the other thing that was really interesting was that let's say you and I get into a disagreement and uh, I'm right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. I'm 90% right. You, you had a couple points in there, 10% in that old thinking. And what I learned is, let's say we have a discussion and maybe, okay, let's say I'm the transgressor. And the great thing was when you could recognize, even within that, that the other person still has a valid point, that they, you could say, oh, you know what? I see that point. There's something really interesting about when you get into a conflict with a person to still keep hearing their side, even when the obvious thing seems to kind of have landed on their they might say, but you know, when you said it like this or this, and it's like, oh, I could see that, you know? And that has been something that was interesting because you get to a place when everybody goes, okay, I, it's not about winning. That's true. But then there's even another place where it's like, you know what? I can see their side. When you were talking about empathy, for example, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So what I would just add is everybody's experience is 100% valid. It doesn't mean they're right. The way they see it through their lens and their filters is very valid. So I just wanted to add that important point. And if you do it to your children, it's, they really get confused. <laughs> well, kids actually start feeling really seen too by you because they're like, oh, I'm not wrong. Mom mean. doesn't think I'm wrong. It's actually, this way you just said is so genius. Honestly, if you practice that with people, you talk about getting back to, to zero, you can de-escalate an entire thing just with that. Like that. It's yeah. crazy. It's, 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 almost, it's better than winning because it's like, ha, they're confused now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love that. Yeah. So this true self, strategic self, let me say it this way. I have a number of ways to talk about this. When you avoid a conflict, okay, most people listening are going to set it up as two shitty choices. Choice A is if I say something and I be myself, my true self, it's going to go bad and they might leave, right? Choice B is if I don't say anything, at least I'll keep the relationship, but I lose my relationship with myself. So it feels like two shitty choices to people. And so they stay stuck, right, in indecision as in a double bind. And most people, that stuckness turns into choice B over time where they just keep avoiding. And it's like, I call it B as in business as usual. They're just like, eh, but they betray themselves along the way. So obviously I'm advocating here for choice A, be your true self, speak up, be, and be willing to lose the relationship. Now this dynamic also got set up as kids where our true self, we got the message, say, so for example, with me, I was sensitive, emotional, empathic boy, and I got the message that that wasn't welcome. So I split off from my true self and created a strategy to keep love and keep connection and not get rejected and abandoned, right? And that gap between my true self and strategic self created some suffering for me that lasted a long, long time until I could figure this out. And because we value belonging more than we value our integrity, we will often betray ourselves to be in the peer group or accepted by a loved one, even if the relationship isn't great for us. We'd rather be with someone and compromise our integrity than be alone. This is, seems to be what I've noticed over time. And conflict becomes this amazing way back home because it's this practice of being yourself over and over and over again. Be yourself. Speak the truth. Tell the truth. Tell people what's actually going on. To me, that's amazing. And so if I turn away from conflict, I'm creating and exemplifying and exaggerating this inner conflict, which creates more suffering for me. This is the challenge with personal growth. And when we start to wake up out of our patterns is we, we tend to notify the person we're in partnership with or closest to us last sometimes. And it's like, I'm doing my personal growth work over here in a bubble or whatever. And then when I finally am like, okay, I want to be myself, I come out swinging. If I've been repressed my whole life, I come out and I tell everybody 
how I feel. Like I did this with my parents. I was, when I first started going to therapy and personal growth, I got in this mindset where it was my parents' fault. I really went there and man, I let them have it. And I really hurt their feelings. I really did some damage to our relationship. And it took me years to clean that up because I had swung to the other side, years of repression, not telling them how I really feel. And then all of a sudden I tell them how I really feel. And it was like the gas was just down and I was like, fuck you. And it was super hard for them. So how can we do that differently? We can give people a heads up that we're on the move, that we're learning, we're growing. We can try to let people know along the way that, gosh, I'm learning all this cool stuff about myself. Are you interested in hearing about it? No. Okay. Should I take that just to my friends? Okay. But I've at least made attempts. So I can refer back to that. Oh, well, I tried to you know, share with you what was happening for me. At a certain point, people reach this place where it's like a threshold where I don't think I can stay in this relationship anymore. Before you bail and make up your mind because you're so resentful, you got to go to the mat for this person and for your relationship and say, look, I've been unhappy. I'm finally realizing that. I want this to be different. Will you fight for our relationship with me? Because I don't want to end this relationship. There's a part of me that does, but I haven't given us a chance. Will you go all in on trying to make this better? And let's like totally reimagine this whole thing. Will you do that with me? So it's an invitation, not a threat. You're inviting them into a new possibility and not everybody's going to say yes to that, right? Well, what does that look like? What does it cost? And (laughs) does it involve me at all? (laughs) Do I have to change? (laughs) You know, and it's like, yeah, actually you do have to change. This is like, our our boat is leaky. We've been out in the ocean for years and it's like got patchy holes and I'm unsatisfied. Come on, let's do something different here. So I think we can invite people rather than um, threaten them. You talk about the five most common fights and how to face them. Yeah, there's five most common types of fights that I seem to identify where we have surface fights, resentment fights, projection fights. And I think the surface fights probably shows up the most. And that's the surfacey layer that some people get caught in. It's about where, who left the keys where, and why didn't you unload the dishwasher this way? And why are you late? That's surfacey. But if it has a lot of charge to it, usually it's a deeper tributary into one of these other types of fights where I actually have a resentment here that I've been harboring and I haven't told you. And I'm just now kind of getting aware of how intense it is for me. Or we have a value difference where our values are actually starting to change as we age. And I'm starting to believe this and you're starting to believe that, or you're starting to want to do this and I want to do that. And it's actually causing a rift here and some fear in our connection. And security fight is more like when one person has one foot in and one foot out. Like with my wife, because I wasn't committed for a long time, I had one foot in and one foot out. So she was on edge more often, right? And then I was annoyed because she was on edge, but I didn't know that I actually had a hand in that, that all I needed to do was put two feet in and then she'd relax. That is a really smart thing about, you know, it's understanding sometimes too, if you really can show up, it doesn't have to be for a long period of time, but when someone really feels somebody there makes everything else so much easier. Oh my God. Like to have a partner who's two feet in and there, it's just like, ah, I can just let down, right? And relax. And it doesn't mean that the other person's making you promises. They're saying, I'm here in this moment. And by the way, I will, if anything changes, guess what? I'll let you know. (laughs) Yeah. So- you talk about um, reconnection and things that you can do, you know, to sort of help stay connected. Well, there's 10 roadblocks I talk about that you definitely don't want to do. And then there's lots of things we could do to reconnect. The, the obvious examples are like vaccines and no vaccines, right? That would be an obvious, especially because people who get kind of polarized, they tend to get very entrenched in their way of seeing it. And it's very hard for them to be curious about the other person's position. So hopefully in a marriage or a business partnership, we're not talking about that level of extreme difference. It's usually more subtle things like, I like nature and you don't, you know? 
And then it's like, well, what are we going to actually do together in our free time? If you want to go to Burning Man and I want to sit at home and we're that different and we actually don't have enough shared values, it can be problematic. The thing that couples need to focus on is what are your shared values that light you both up that you do together? That can be glue for the relationship. And if that's very small, like a very tiny little thing, that's not enough glue to keep you guys together and your differences will drive you apart. But we want to be different in a partnership. In fact, the differences actually make you stronger as long as you have some overlapping values. Again, like you said, sometimes through time we grow. So maybe we can talk about the roadblocks and things that people can do instead of those roadblocks. The roadblocks are things that we all do. We blame, we hope and pray it's going to get better. We use time as like a distraction, right? Like just, I look, Gabby, if, you know, if I just kind of ignore this for another month, maybe it'll just kind of disappear, right? That's time. And there's a lot of, we could do gaslighting and stonewalling. Hopefully that's not happening in your relationship. But these are all things that are human behaviors that destroy connection over time if done consistently. That's why I call them roadblocks. And again, we all blame, like you said, it's like blame in your head quietly. Or if you're going to blame, get underneath the blame and what's driving it. So in the book, I just try to unpack what you can do about each one of those. And really the, the, the solution, as simple as it is, is like learn how to work through conflict, learn how to communicate more effectively under stress. That's kind of the answer, right? So in wrapping up, what is it that you're working on? What is it that maybe could keep you up at night? Ooh, well, two things. When my wife and I are off, which isn't that often, but it happens, of course, that keeps me up at night. I don't like that. When we are not at zero, I don't like how that feels and I'm motivated to change it. And we're currently in the process of kind of upgrading how we repair as a couple. We, we got a little lazy for a few years and now it's like we're sharpening our own saw here of like, how do we get even more efficient and effective here? So that's something I'm working on. And then what keeps me up, uh, sometimes not sleeping, is usually my business stuff. I get very heady and stressed about my business and the next thing, and I got to figure out this problem and there's so many fucking problems to solve. And One last thing about conflict. Don't you think you get to a place sometimes where you have room where you go, hey, this week our dancing, we're stepping on each other's toes a little more. And if I just keep at it, that it'll show back up that we're moving fluidly because I do think sometimes the toe stepping is a part of life as long as we don't let it Absolutely. go too long. Yeah, yeah. You don't want it to go on too long because it means you just haven't figured out the way to get to zero yet or back to your good baseline place. But the toe step is normal and it sometimes it takes days. And given how busy we all are, it takes days to find the time and space and the, the tools to like work through the thing. That's normal and it can feel crunchy for many days. My wife and I have a rule like let's not let this go on longer than 24 hours without at least beginning to address it. It doesn't mean we have to be at zero within 24 hours, but it means we're not going to avoid the kind of crunchiness. We're going to turn toward it within 24 hours and like deal. And it might take us a couple of days. It might take us a couple hours, but we're committed. Tell me, tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah. So you can go to relationshipschool.com. That's kind of the main page where you can Find the Instagram handles and the podcast, ton of Relationships School podcast episodes with amazing, amazing folks. And then the book is gettingtozerobook.com or after October 5th, it's in all the places. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for your work because we all need it, Lord knows. And I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.